<laughs> this episode of the Nerd Cave Retro is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash nerdcave. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. You're listening to the Nerd Cave Network. programs and welcome back to the nerd cave retro show my name is jason robbins and i'm Derek diamond and embarrassing myself with the new soundboard in front of our very important guest tonight <laughs> uh we actually have um we've had a, a pretty good list of guests that we've had on this show Derek. uh we've had uh we had mr joey image we've had tom merritt We've had uh, Brian Dunaway, we've had the Podfather, Paris Lilly, and now we have the Grand Poobah of podcasting. Uh, as a guy, I'm going to tell a little bit of story here before we go into my introduction. Well, this is my introduction for him, but uh, in 2007, from 2006 to 2009, I was a really big WoW player. Like, World of Warcraft was my life for about three years. And um, mm. I first got into podcasting like right around 2007. And uh, you know how when you first get into podcasting, you start downloading like everything you're interested in. And you kind of go through this like a period of listening to everything. And then you kind of whittle stuff down to like your favorite stuff. Well, one of the uh, shows that I listened to that I loved because I was trying to find video game podcasts. And I came across this show called The Instance. And it was this guy named Scott Johnson out of Utah and Randy Jordan. And uh, it was a really well-produced show. Like, you know, most podcasts, especially, you know, still you can find some podcasts like this, but especially like around 2007 or so, most podcasts sounded like it was a dude sitting inside of a tin can and they were awful and just sounded like crap. But this show, well, like, had, you know, sounded like you could hear it on the radio. Like, it had really fun guests and segments. And, you know, they were, they had interviews with, with actual WoW developers and stuff. And I was like, who is this dude? Scott Johnson, man. So I go online and look him up and I find that he's a web cartoonist. I'm like, these are awesome. Like, I want to do this. Like, I didn't know web cartoons existed at that point. It was like this whole new world opened up to me. And at that time, you know, from about 2005 to 2010, I, you know, I was diagnosed with depression, uh, clinical depression and anxiety and stuff and was looking for things to kind of get me out of that funk. And, you know, my wife came along and she had seen some of my artwork that I did back in like the nineties and stuff. And I had stopped doing, well, she got me a big art set and I started doing cartooning again. And then I found, you know, all of Scott's stuff online. And then I wanted to do, you know, a, a web comic and everything like that. And looking at his, uh, videos online of how he does his stuff, like digital stuff. It was just like, you know, I really looked up to this guy, and today, you know, I've been on Current Geek a couple of times, and if you listen to his shows, he's got The Morning Stream, Current Geek, Film Sack, The Boop Show, The Instance Core. I struggle to do two shows a week. I don't know how 
Scott does as many shows as he does, but he's my favorite podcaster in the world and the man that I look up to. And uh, he makes me want to be, you know, that much better when I listen to him every day. So here he is, Mr. Frog Pants himself, Mr. Scott Johnson. Well, that's the nicest stuff I've ever heard anybody ever say about me ever. So that was really (laughs) nice, man. I I super appreciate that. I hope I can... uh, somehow live up to the uh to that uh, that image today on this show and not completely blow it for you guys but i'm excited to be here for a couple reasons one uh i think you're a pretty rad dude too and when you asked it was like a no-brainer it's like yep let's totally make this happen but two you guys talk about the kind of stuff i'm way into so this was like an easy easy pick for locking down some time and doing an extra show which isn't always that easy for me i get crazy schedule stuff going on it's hard for me to do other shows um, I love guesting when I can, but it's hard. So this was a chance for me to 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 guest on a show that sounds like it's right up my alley. So oh, yeah. thank you for having me. And you and I don't feel like I live up to any of that stuff you said, <laughs> but I'll take it as a compliment anyway. So thank you for that. Well, it, it's really cool because I've found that this show here is easiest the easiest show I've ever done to get guests for. Like Derek, I don't know about you because Derek does a, a podcast himself called the Derek Diamond Experience where. You know, he got the voice of for Mario last week, which was a great show, by the way. Mm. You're too flattering, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, is it? It's it, yeah. It's definitely tough, you know, with, with trying to schedule guests and you know trying to fill content. So I can only imagine what you go through, Scott. Yeah, it's a little tr- tricky. I mean, I've gotten, I've been doing this long enough where I don't know. I've got some tricks now. It's not. <laughs> as hard as it used to be. And, and I love doing it so much that I don't really even think about it anymore. Like I just do the stuff I do. The hardest thing I do is probably the thing I enjoy the most right now, which is I do a morning show every day for four days a week, plus a fifth episode later on Fridays. And that turned out to be uh, the hardest, most work related thing I've had to do in podcasting, but the most rewarding by far. Like I'm having so much fun with that thing. And people are always like, how do you do that five days a week? I'm like, I don't know. How do you listen to it five days a week? I don't know how people do anything. <laughs> so for me, it's, uh, you know, it's just a, it's all a matter of degrees. But, um, you know, you do this long enough and you start to, even though I still feel like we're all just sort of exploring new territory and we're hacking down, you know, trees with our virtual machetes trying to figure out what's behind them. And, and we don't really know. Um, but you do this long enough and you start to figure out ways around stuff. So it's, it's all good. Yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah, uh, that's very true. I do have a pretty cool story from this weekend, uh, a retro gaming story that, uh, you know, my brother um, in 1990, my brother went off to uh, college in 1992, my first year of high school. And, uh, you know, the Super Nintendo came out in 1991 uh, and I got it that Christmas in 1991. And then, you know, my brother moved off to college in 92 and, uh, you know, he went four years of college to 96, graduated, and then he moved off to Daytona immediately after graduating so the last time me and my brother lived under one roof was you know 26 years ago now and um yeah, you know he's got his family and everything well he came down this weekend for a visit and uh he came over to the house and it's very rare that my brother gets to to we just get to hang out you know together as brothers because uh, you know he's got the family and everything uh, other than like holidays and stuff well he came over to the house and First time he's been here in, you know, four or five years to my house. And uh, I was showing him my video game setup and everything. And I uh, said, I got something I got to show you. And I hooked up the Super Nintendo. I put in uh, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. And I still had 
his save file from 1992 on there. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's great, man. I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't know where to find any of that crap. Yeah, he, he was <laughs> quite. Uh, he was quite blown away by that, and uh, we sat in here and played uh, Link to the Past for a bit today or yesterday, and that was fun. Yeah, I'll tell you what bumps me out. This is actually what bums me out a little bit is I don't have like at the time it seemed like the right thing to do. But every time a new console would come out, I'd go, well, the only way I can justify buying an N64 is I need to get rid of my (sighs) SNES and my Genesis. And then when the, uh, you know, I can't remember what came next for me, probably the Saturn or something. But whenever something new would come out, I would always want it and get it. But I'd feel guilty if I didn't try to sell the previous thing. And so none of it occurred to me that I would one day be mad that I didn't collect it all. And I am so regretful of that. Like to this day, it irritates the crap out of me that I still don't have an N64 that I originally owned or don't have an originally owned everything all the way back to an NES. Like I thought all that stuff needed to move on and make room for the new. And it was just the wrong move, man. I would love to have all that stuff, like either not even hooked up, just display it someplace or say, oh my gosh, look at this stack of crap over here. I mean, I have enough crap. And so this is probably double-edged sword, but there are days I wish I could go down that road. Yeah. No, I, um, I'm, in, I'm in exactly the same boat. I sold all my old, you know, NES, SNES, N64, all that stuff. I've been rebuying it, but I still wish I had that original you know, version that I owned as a kid. Mm-hmm. I still have my original yeah, NES and Super Nintendo. I was never going to get rid of those. Of course, there. Uh, I don't know if you can kind of see my Super Nintendo there behind me. It's got that kind of brownish tint to it now that all the Super Nintendos do after they they've been exposed to, you know, salt air for thirty years. And um, you know, I I used to be really OCD about my my game boxes, and I used to keep all of my game boxes. I not with the games, but you know, I would take the games out, put them on my shelf, and then I would take the boxes and keep them up in my closet. I wouldn't throw anything away as a kid, but for some reason, all those boxes are missing. Uh, either my mom threw them away, or uh, sometime in the past, you know, a couple of decades or whatever, but. I really wish I still had all those boxes from the games that I had because my entire collection, I would still have the boxes to everything. And I even still had the Super Nintendo box up until a couple of years ago. And for some reason, I let my wife talk me into throwing it away. (laughs) Uh, That's a bummer, dude. Let that be a lesson to you, kids. (laughs) Yeah. And you never know, like, I, I just didn't, I don't know, I just didn't think of it that way. And my kids are now like, Dad, why'd you do it? And I'm like, well, part of it was for you guys. I was yeah. like, getting the new things, we could all play, <laughs> you know, Ocarina of Time. And and you didn't know, you were six or whatever, and you know, or five or four or whatever they were at the time. And so they, you know, they've got all this artificial anger that I didn't keep all that yeah. stuff. But at the same time, I, you know, I don't know. We live in this crazy slap together video game world now where, I don't know, 10 years ago, if you'd have told me I'd have 900 games ready to play on a PC for no good reason, I'd say you were full of it. If you'd have said I'd have a Nintendo device I could carry around with me and play in bed and download, you know, old games, new games, indie games too, I'd have said you were crazy. Like, we are in a renaissance period, and I don't know if we appreciated it enough. Yeah, exactly. So, all all (laughs) hindsight being 2020, yeah, I should have collected that stuff. The truth is, all of that I can play again on retro pies or a million other ways to get them. Uh, I can get on eBay and find me a SNES. I can do all this sort of stuff. 
but I'll never get back. Like I owned the, what's that Genesis offshoot thing? It was called a, Oh, the CDX. Yeah. You guys probably mm-hmm. know. This thing. Yeah. Sega CD Genesis all in a small, like CD player size thing. They were very shortly lived. They were barely on the shelves. I bought one. When did that for that stupid thing? And I don't know why I sold it. That should be right over there on the shelf. I'm so annoyed <laughs> that it's not. But I am happy we live in a time where, you know, all this stuff is pretty much at our fingertips. Yeah. And I can go from AAA to retro in five seconds. I'm glad Nintendo has embraced this with their two recent releases of their classic consoles. Uh, there's a few things I'd do different if I were them. But for the most part, I think that's a positive uh, bit of movement. So, I don't know, man. I feel like there's, there's, this is a good opportunity on the show tonight for me to pinch myself and remind myself just how rad we have it as gamers right now. It's incredible. And that's Absolutely. the thing, you know, when I was a kid, you know, in, in the time of the, the original Nintendo, you know, I was just, a, a, you know, from between the ages of like nine and 12, you know, I was playing hardcore NES and, you know, you wanted a game. It was 50 bucks. You know, whether it was a good game or a bad game, each game was 50 bucks. So, you know, you only got mm-hmm. one or two games a year, birthday and Christmas. So it wasn't like you could go online and, and you know, a 99 cent uh, app on the smartphone, you know, like has more power than the Nintendo had at the time. And, and you know, that you can get, like you said, emulators. You can go online and get every single Nintendo game ever made for like, you know, and put it on a... a one gig uh you know little thumb drive or something and it's all right Mm -hmm. there and you know people talk to me uh a lot about you know retro game stuff and they and they wonder why i spend so much time hunting stuff down and not just getting an emulators because you know there's something about the thrill of the hunt you know Mm -hmm. when you're looking for something in particular you know like i'm still on the hunt for like um you know, zombies ate my neighbors and things like that. You know, I could easily go online and find an emulation of it, but there's not going to be the same feeling as when I finally get that copy that I've been looking for, you know, and pop yeah, there's the not, original there's, Super Nintendo. There's an authenticity to doing that, to finding authentic stuff, and that's getting harder and harder to do. That stuff is, it's funny because as we enter a digital age where everything is infinitely copyable, mm-hmm. uh, you see industries like, um, a good example would be comic books. Comics are great, and everyone still loves comics, and comics are great. But you're, we are done with the days where a limited number of prints were made with the of a Kiss comic, and Gene yep. Simmons's real blood <laughs> is in there. And you know, like, if you have one of those, it's worth a lot. Or somebody found a Detective Comics jammed in the back of a house someplace, and now that's worth fifty grand or whatever. Those days are gone from a certain time forward. Mm-hmm. It's about the mid '90s. It doesn't matter what you bought, when you bought it, no matter how popular that comic was, it doesn't matter, or even how unpopular it was, they don't sell for Jack. And why? Because that stuff's all digital now, and there's not as much interest in that authenticity because, again, it's just ubiquitous. It's just too, there's no reason to call it a collector's item anymore. What's weird is video games are kind of folding back the other way. I thought this would go completely the opposite. If you're just looking to play it, you can emulate anything. Uh, you can pirate anything, you can hack anything, you can legally get stuff and have it be pretty accurate. That SNES Classic is a great example of, you know, a really high quality but ultimately emulated experience. Mm-hmm. So so it's funny because video games have gone the other way. Now it's really valuable for you to go find 
the rare Ocarina of Time gold cartridge mm-hmm. uh, with full manual and case still intact or whatever. Like they're they're having a resurgence in that mm-hmm. popularity and those prices go up on the antiquity of video game stuff. And that includes consoles, that includes rare and hard to get games. People go to Japan like on a pilgrimage just to find weird stuff in a bin. Like I love that. I love that games have figured out a way despite the complete digitization of that world they figured out a way to to do it and i don't i don't think anyone saw that coming so yeah shows like your yours obviously talks a lot about this and supports this whole space but no one saw that coming whereas music video a million other formats totally the other direction well, video games yeah. while very digital and if you're just trying to play look if i just want to play donkey kong 3 <laughs> and by the way donkey kong 3 is rad and anyone who tells me different can suck it uh <laughs> I mean, I realize it's a weird game, and it probably doesn't ex- shouldn't exist in the canon of the series, but it's a pretty fun game. Anyway, I always look fondly on Donkey Kong 3, but, you know, <clears throat> there's something about, do I just want to play Donkey Kong 3, or do I want to own a piece of history? Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is go find that card someplace and stick it in, S- in an NES and play it. Well, I was going to say, you know, you bring that up. I, I was actually, um, uh, it was an article I read. I don't remember where it was, but it, it was about the, the popularity of the Nintendo 64 the last couple of years, you know, retro uh, shops saying that they just can't keep them in stock, especially around the holidays, because people are buying up every Nintendo 64 that they can find um, because everybody, you know, loved that console. But not only that, but it was one of the only consoles where you could play four player right there without having any sort of like, you know, peripheral to have to play, you know, plug in uh, other controllers and stuff. It's like it was the ultimate party console where you could play yeah. Mario Kart for four player, you know, Mario Party and things like that. So it's, you know, its popularity is actually starting to go on the rise. And I'm wondering, you know, we've talked about this, Derek, if they're going to do, um, you know, a, a Nintendo 64 mini anytime soon. I think it might be coming sooner than we think because of the popularity of the console itself. I think so, too. And, you know, like you said, it's something that we have talked about and we've both said it might happen in, you know, 2019 or 2020. But I won't be shocked if, you know, in the next few months we hear it might come out as soon as this Christmas. I I don't see why not, because the NES, I mean, we've we've documented the failure that Nintendo had with keeping those things in stock. But the NES sold really well. The SNES sold really well. There's no reason the N64 won't sell well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, the right. only thing I can think of with the N64 that may hold it back, and maybe this changes with time, because, you know, I remember the shift to 3D when the 64 and the PSX or the PlayStation came out. Um, there was this real sense of, ooh, big major change. Everything's going polygonal. We're going 3D. We're getting away from sprites and all that. And Sega struggled to keep up because really the Saturn originally started as a really awesome 2D capable machine and they had to kind of retrofit it to to sort of make 3d come out of that thing but it was pretty bad um you know they kind of got it right with the dreamcast but by then this you know the writing was on the wall but anyway the point is that those early attempts at 3d were really really cool for their time but if you look at them now yeah yeah they're a little rough (laughs) a little rough like real like n64 texturing is just about the worst smeary thing you've ever looked at uh PSX stuff, that jittery, awful 
stuff with the original PlayStation is really, really bad. A, a necessary step in the evolution of video games, no doubt. But this really awkward moment that I don't know if holds up the same or has the same kind of nostalgia tied to it. Certainly there are really good games on that device. There were. Uh, Mario 64 is still probably my favorite video game of all time. It blew my mind at the time and changed the way I thought about video games. Zelda did similar things later on with Ocarina of Time. Uh, but they look like garbage now. <laughs> they really, <laughs> really look bad. And so what what happens there is they end up coming out with remasters that look really good. And you're like, oh, yeah, the gameplay is still here, but also I'm not looking at trash all day. And if you really go back and look at that stuff, I think it's hard to go back. That being said, time shifts. It's just like the shifting time thing. Why do I think, why do we think pixel art is cool now? Well, there's enough time has passed yeah. and we think it's cool still. So we make new games based on it and it's great and everyone loves it. Half of Steam is some sort of pixel roguelike, which is amazing because I love that stuff. But then will we have a time, let's say in the next five, 10 years where we shift ahead again and we look back so fondly on the 3D transition that finally that stuff doesn't look like somebody pooped. I really don't think so. And then so. maybe it's yeah, it again. I'm I don't know. I don't know. We've talked about this on numerous occasions, you know, the that jump to 3D and how just awful everything looks in that in that era. And I, I don't think we're going to look back on it fondly at all. Mm. Yeah. No. I mean, possibly. Do you guys think that... I don't know. I mean, in a way, it bums me out. Because it heralded this important change, right? Yeah. Especially for Nintendo. Nintendo was like, all right, big, weird plastic shape. It's got a number on it. We're not giving it a regular name. Uh, it's got these four ports, which is cool. But these controllers look like Batman had a bad dream. Like, it's just <laughs> so weird. And, but at the same time, they introduced analog control to a mass audience. Yeah. And that was that was stunning like that changed the way the business moved forward so there's so many things they did right but then they were like well we're gonna go cartridges not digital media what's funny is the world's gotten completely yeah. away from optical discs and moved back to digital or, or a solid state essentially as as yeah. the, for this stuff which is it's so funny how that switched to me like i remember people going oh nintendo you're so behind the times i can't believe you're not gonna put this on cd and everybody was praising what sony was doing it's the opposite now like the complete opposite. I don't want a. I don't even want cartridges. I want freaking download it, put it on a you know, an SD card or whatever kind of storage I've got on that thing. Like that's the best innovation of our lives. <laughs> it's the greatest yeah. thing ever. And you don't lose you don't lose uh you know anything in terms of music or sound or any of that. That stuff's all there. I mean, I was just playing ESO over here uh, earlier today. That game's eighty gigabytes. Got all this audio and dialogue and all this stuff. And to me, it's just no big deal. It's on this like four terabyte drive. It's like this tiny thing, no big deal. And, you know, the N64 had kind of weird music and it didn't sound exactly right because it wasn't optical disc quality, blah, blah, blah. But that transition is so historically important, yet so ugly and not as fun as we remember it. And if you go so back. So I'm yeah, I'm very curious how that all pans out. If you go back and and ha not having played a Nintendo 64 in a while and go back and, and use that controller when we're so used to the last, you know, 20 years of the dual analog, and then you go back to that single analog controller, it's like... Mm -hmm. It sucks. It's awful. It, it really, really sucks, because I, I played through Ocarina of Time again a couple of months ago, and it was a struggle to get used to that thing again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, play, I replayed it on the 3DS with the... 
what was the whatever version they called that? I forget what they called it, but they basically uh, mastered it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was great. Like it, mm -hmm. it actually felt pretty good. But they, but they changed some stuff. Like the interface changed, and that device only has a single analog stick, and it's a goof, goofy, weird little disc thing anyway. But, uh, you know, it was like the gameplay was always there. Like it was mm -hmm. always there. It was always amazing, and it will always hold up. It's yeah. just. It's just the limitations of the tech at the time. Like, if you just go look at a screenshot right now, you're just like, oh, I don't remember this. This is really bad. And part of it was because yeah. you were playing it on a, you know, 19-inch CRT, big fat TV or whatever, over RF connectors, and you just didn't care because that was video games. And we've just come so far so quickly that we forget how, how you know, rough some of those edges were. All that being said, I mean, you know, jump into the GameCube, PS2, uh, and the original Xbox era, Suddenly you're like, oh, okay, right move. We've done, you know, we're, we're past the awkward stage. Puberty's over. Yeah. We can now just <laughs> move into young adult life as video games go, and the whole world changed. And now, I mean, I still think we're breathing those fumes. That's still kind of yeah. where we're at. We've just improved the, the fidelity, you know, certainly past that, but we're still in the same zone as we were yeah. with, with that yeah. launch. But, yeah, I don't know. I find that fast. It's a fascinating conversation about what what – historic role or nostalgic role should the PlayStation one and the N64 really play in our lives. And I don't think we know the answer yet. Well, I think it's the PlayStation one is probably just going to go uh, be fossilized because nobody wants that console. First of all, because why would you get that? If you have, if you can go get a PlayStation two and mm -hmm. have play backwards the same games. Backwards yeah. compatibility and be able to play better games. So, yeah. you know, yeah. PlayStation exactly. ones are just nobody wants those consoles now. No, right. it was so huge at the time. I just, like I said, I don't think enough time has passed. Here's the other problem too: is optical drives and the guts of those things don't hold up over yeah. time the way solid state cartridge based stuff does. And as much as we had to blow out a cartridge <laughs> just to get it to work on a SNES or whatever. Uh, that's still preferable to an optical drive that just gives out because you can only spin for so long and your and your life is over. So in a lot of ways, they're not going to hold up long term for that reason either. N64 has maybe an advantage in that regard. But um, what what I hope for, as much as I was just talking smack about emulation, what I hope the long term prognosis is is that we emulate everything so that it's as accurate down to the errors and the goofs and the stuff as possible. So, like, as raw accurate as possible as a, as a duplicate of what it was originally. So, at the very least, moving forward, we have a historical archive that can be accessed anytime down the road. And we never forget where we were in this medium. Yeah, um, That's really important to me. And so, whether that comes from the companies who make these games or it comes from the underground who wants to see these things preserved, I don't actually care who does it. I just want to make sure they do so that, you know... I mean, I want to have grandkids one day, and when I do, I would like to, you know, say, well, let me let me fire up this Mario Kart that originally <laughs> appeared in 1991, and you know, I want I want to go there, and I want to do it in a way that feels real and so, accurate. And speaking of that, do you think yeah. that it, it would be um, feasible for, say, you know, a bunch of <clears throat> people get together and come up with some sort of uh, like a gaming museum sort of thing? where you have this online place you go and you could play 
every single game, say, from, you know, the very first video game ever made, like, you know, Pong type of game, or up to, you know, a certain year, let's say, like, 2010. Like, just let's pretend it's the year 2030. And up to, like, 2020, you can go to this certain website or whatever, and you could play any of these games for free just because they are preserved, all the ROMs have been preserved and available in one spot. Yeah, I mean, I think we're heading there. In fact, there's already great inroads being made by uh, the archive.org project, which has, uh, you go there now, you get any DOS game you can imagine, all emulated and running and, and available, and they do it as a historic preservation. It's not there to say, ah, we pirated all these games, come play them. Because for the most part, a lot of old DOS stuff is kind of garbage, to be honest. But it's all there and, and available. Um, they've had some resistance from that initially. Then people kind of saw the wisdom of it. I mean, their their goal is not to pirate video games. Their goal is to preserve them. Yeah. And just like it's their goal to preserve web pages and preserve audio and video content. So you can go there and find crazy wartime newsreels from 1930 that are just unbelievably cool and lost to the world if it wasn't for what they're doing. You can't find that stuff on YouTube. You can't find it in any other major source. So they're already doing this um, to a degree. The question is, will they go further? And I don't see why not. Like the technology that allows, at least right now, a browser to accurately give you a game of Quake is not, it's not that crazy to think that in 10 years that same technology or the, the evolution of that same technology wouldn't give you, you know, uh, I'm trying to make an example, Breath of the Wild in, just in, the, in the same way. Uh, and so I think that it'll always be a little behind the cutting edge of where the business is releasing video games. But I, I do think it will catch up and keep up. All that being said, you know there are going to be legal battles. There's no way around oh, it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, yeah. Well, especially, you know, what you guys were talking about, uh, I think it was on Current Geek this week, about the uh, the current uh, copyright laws and, you know, how ridiculously long those copyright laws are. Um, do you think they're if we come to some sort of, you know, fixing these copyright laws to where you can, you know, people can innovate on things that are, you know, copyright, like, don't get me wrong, you know, I was a musician, I've got songs that were you know registered with ASCAP and BMI and everything and there's copyrights with that but you know at a certain point like after, I think at the end of my lifetime that stuff should be up for grabs unless there's some sort of you know beforehand stuff worked out but you know as far as like video games and stuff I really think that that stuff should be a little more lax so that they can do things like preservation and things like that yeah, I agree. I, um, I mean, you guys may even discuss some of this with Tom Merritt. I'm not sure, but he's he's always one to talk to about copyright law and where it's at today and where it used to be. And we were just talking the other day about how Steamboat Willie, Disney's original character that eventually sort of morphed into Mickey Mouse, uh, will be up for uh, the current copyright law, which is lifetime plus 90 years, mm -hmm. which is stupid, Yeah. by the way. <laughs> so if you live to be 100... 190 years before a public domain is crazy. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, the idea is that in 2030, I think it is, that becomes public domain unless 
uh, Disney, a mega giant biggest corporation in the entertainment world ever in the history of ever, decides to push for more stringent laws about them retaining ownership of that or extending the time or something like that. They're not expected to, but it's definitely a conversation people are having right now about, well, that's not that far away. What does that mean? And, you know, that affects a lot of things. So my point is that that stuff sort of trickles down to all kinds of media. Video games are certainly not immune to this. I think the big difference is what video game companies have learned, certainly Nintendo has learned this recently, is that people are willing to still pay money for these old experiences. And because they're willing to spend that money, they have no interest in seeing those games go public domain anytime soon. Yeah. So the way I would like to see this go down, the, the easy thing and, and the thing they're okay with is for a physical brick-and-mortar museum to have 20 NESs playing Duck Hunt and a placard explaining when it came out, who designed it, and why it's rad. Like, that's okay with them now. Yeah. You know, they're totally cool with that. What they're not cool with, and I don't know how this is going to change, honestly. <laughs> so I'm a little negative on this. But what they don't want is archive.org to have a Nintendo library of old games that people can go and play at will. Like right now, I can. I was looking at archive again. I can go into vet, the Vetrix uh, section or the Atari 2600 section the zx spectrum section dos game section they have all this stuff in here every vetrix game is here and playable right now <laughs> and they're not it's not downloadable or maybe it is actually hold on is it no it's not i was curious about that because i don't know what you're playing on and there's emulators for all this stuff anyway so if you're already doing this illegally you're already doing it but what would be nice is if like what Archive's doing, we get to a place where we are cool with the idea of these things being a historical record, but in a way that everybody can access it and not have to drive to some museum in, in Chicago to get there. And yeah. that's, I'm not that optimistic that that will happen because they've seen that they still can make money. If they didn't think they could make money, they wouldn't have had the, the, uh, the top selling console of last year was an NES classic. Yeah. That sold more, they sold more of those than anything else. That's insane. And they sold out. They were gone. And the SNES experienced the same kind of sales. And now and they've continued to make them. So we're we're the problem almost. We're <laughs> we're you know swiping these things up saying, yes, we're still willing to pay for your really old stuff. Yeah. And they're going then good. We're never gonna let go of it. So I don't know, man. I don't have a lot of confidence in that future, to be honest. And the irony's not lost on me either with the copyright stuff that Disney made their empire off of public domain properties, and now their stuff is about to come up as public domain stuff. And they're mm -hmm. fighting to keep it under, you know, their copyright for it. So that it just, I don't know, that seems kind of weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, we'll see. That's true of a lot of things, though, you know, music or whatever. But like, uh, people want to hang on to it forever. We can go ahead and start the show now. And it's <laughs> oh, yeah, so, really good, deep conversation about cool stuff. And we, we have, you have yeah. a cool outline. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, actually, we got a couple of uh, news stories we're going to blow through real quick. And um, let's go ahead and move into that. And this is this week's news. Derek, I'm going to let you cover this first story since you're the Game Boy guy here. Cool. So uh, this comes to us from BGR.com. Hyperkin plans to revive the Game Boy before Nintendo has a chance. 
The market for retro gaming hardware has been around for ages, but no one quite knew how massive it could be until Nintendo came out with the NES Classic in 2016, alluding to what we were talking about earlier. The miniature console sold out immediately, and every time it came back in stock, it was gone as quickly as it had arrived. Nintendo followed it up with the SNES Classic in 2017, and despite having more stock, still managed to sell it at virtually every retailer. Taking advantage of the wave of enthusiasm for old-school hardware, gaming peripheral maker Hyperkin announced at CES 2018 this week that it is working on an updated version of Nintendo's Game Boy that will actually play original Game Boy games in addition to featuring countless improvements over the original hardware. Uh, let's see. Uh, as far as the Ultra Game Boy looks, there are significant changes. First of all, there's a third dial that allows you to adjust the backlit LCD display, which wasn't possible on the first several Game Boy models. Uh, if you want an authentic Game Boy experience, though, you can turn off the backlight altogether. The built-in battery has a six-hour lifespan, a USB-C charging port, stereo speakers, as well as right and left audio output connectors. Hmm. So, Let's uh, see. It's planning to launch... Uh, uh, one last thing, it's planning to launch the Ultra Game Boy uh, before the end of the summer for a price point under $100. I don't know. Uh, we've talked about this before. I don't see the point in this. Not with smartphones. Why You could just do this on a smartphone. Well, you could, but here's the problem. You can't plug a cartridge into a smart, smartphone. So their, their one up on this one is... Here's a form factor where the actual cartridges go in there. There's no software built into the thing. So they're skirting uh, the legal fight with Nintendo mm -hmm. on this by doing that. Um, but, but you're absolutely right. Like my phone could more than happily play everything that ever existed, you know, pre-1995 and then, and, and then beyond. And they're never going to do it because the only way to get software on there is to, is to load, it, load it on there. They'd have to, it would have to be pretty skeezy it would have to be google play only first of all because apple's way way over controlling when it comes to what gets released yeah. on their device and it would all have to be side loaded roms they'd never be able to just go to the store and get them it'd be an app in fact i'm sure this already exists there's probably some emulator on there now and then people are letting you know you can side load roms on there and play it that way so i think this is already happening this is just somebody cashing out on a hardware grab and that's fine, but I also don't want to go scour the world for a bunch of NES cartridges. I would really much rather wait for Nintendo to release a device. Yeah. Um, or, you know what, better? Hey, Nintendo, I have a Switch right here. <laughs> that thing's really capable. Why don't you give me everything you've been putting on all these other extra pieces of plastic? Put them all on there. That's my new device. Done. Yeah. I'll pay money. I'll pay Nintendo the money for the games. I don't have a problem with that. Like, five bucks a pop? Here you go. I don't have a problem, but I don't want to go buy an, another one, another little fake ripoff Game Boy. Yeah, we just okay. had a Skype crash. Uh, Derek Skype crashed out. So let me see if uh, if I can add him back to the call here. Oh, no worries. Come on, no worries. <clears throat> Gotta love Skype. We started, we started using... Um, uh, Discord pretty exclusively lately, and it's been real good for us. Yeah, um, it. we used it for a pop culture palette, but um, it crashed on us last week when we were trying to. Oh, no, really? So we had to skip over ha halfway through the show. We had to skip use uh, Skype. Oh, weird. We haven't had I haven't had any problems like that, but I don't know. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's some other issues, but the video has been really good. The audio has been great. I've been very happy with it. 
There he is. I think Derek's I, back. I think I'm back. <laughs> but uh, I have a, another story cool. here, and this is, I, I just added this, it's kind of weird. Uh, from, what is this, NintendoLife.com, woman loves Tetris so much he's going to marry her copy. Um, this is the best story we've ever talked about on the show, <laughs> by the way. Hurricane, uh, <laughs> let's see, a 20-year-old Nurul. Oh, they, this is this is all right up your alley, Scott, trying to <laughs> say this name here. <laughs> Nurul Majabin Hassan from Florida uh, prefers to go Yosh. by the name Fractal Tetris Hurricane, and her adopted moniker might give you an idea of the game she loves above all others, classic Russian public Tetris. She identifies as objectum sexual, meaning she's physically and emotionally attracted to inanimate objects rather than actual people. Uh, she describes growing up attracted to everything from treadmills to GPS devices uh, before entering a relationship with the legendary puzzle romp in September of 2016. She plays up to 12 hours a day on her smartphone and her Game Boy and plans to marry her copy of the game in front of friends and family once she graduates. I don't even know what to say about this. <laughs> Here's the thing. So this is where I can actually bring I can bring a little light on this. I have a, my sister's a psychologist, and she, we have discussed this very thing, um, this this situation where some people they're the only way you could classify them is they're into stuff, not people. Yeah. So you know they're attracted to whatever it may be. And the the one example I talked to my sister about was somebody who was really into photo booth machines. Um. Like not taking the photos, not being in the photo, none of that. It's just the machine. And she found one in particular she really liked. And I think in that case, married the machine or did some ceremony that sort of, you know, committed to the machine or whatever. So that part is less strange to me than specifically it being Tetris. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's this cartridge. And it's also that thing ain't going to last forever, by the way. And I guess no... No marriage does. But <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know what to think of it either. It's real. It's a, that is a very specific kind of attraction, um, and 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 I don't know that I would be so into Tetris that I could ever feel that way. But hey, whatever. You know, not do what you got to do. I don't well, that's wrong music. Be, that's uh, from Angry Birds. I was getting confused. Can't think of any game that I would be that attracted to that I would want to marry it, uh, other than Ninja Gaiden, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd probably spend more time with World of Warcraft than your average marriage stays together. But <laughs> I, I never once thought, you know, we ought to we ought to consummate this and make this real. Let's go to Vegas and you know go to the White Chapel or something like that. Never happened once in my experience. Yeah. But uh, one more thing uh, we need to talk fantastic. about is uh, Sega drops a curious teaser for incoming announcement next week. Uh, all it did was it, it put on Twitter, it was a picture of a light bulb, and it says January 16th. And that was it. Nobody knows what it's about. Everybody's kind of speculating whether it's a PC release um, of Bayonetta. Uh, hid clues that the cult favorite Vanguish would come to the platform later on. Uh, some people are talking about maybe it has something to do with the re-release of um, the what was it called? Not the the first the Sega CD, the not the Sega CD, but the um, Saturn has something to do with oh. the Saturn. Mm -hmm. So I don't really? know what to Were think you... about it. Interesting. Well, there's nothing in the image that's super telling. Like it's literally just no. a light bulb. I'm looking really close at it here. In fact, I've zoomed it way in, and I don't see like weird shadows in it or any kind of like shapes yeah. 
that'll give anything away. And cause that is kind of a, I thought that's kind of might be what they were doing there. Um, I have a theory if you guys want to hear what I think it is. Sure. Sure. I think we're getting a, I think we're getting a dreamcast mini. That's what I think it is. Possibly. I think it's a tiny dreamcast. It'll be front loaded with all of Sega's games that they had at the time. Jet set radio and all those, you know, stuff, the Sonic games and all that. And they'll make deals with like the original soul caliber people uh, which I guess is Namco or whoever, and they'll end up releasing on the, on the heels of this popularity boom, a stripped down, preloaded, you know, mini version of the Dreamcast, and it would shock me if that's not it. I'll bet you money that ends up being it. That's actually a pretty. That good, would actually be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Jumping on and the that Nintendo could, Mini that could also, uh, They they could do they could kill one bird with one stone. Wait wait wait. Sorry, many birds with one stone here. <laughs> They could say, here's a bunch of Dreamcast stuff, but then also, guess what? We put Streets of Rage and half a dozen other really popular Genesis titles on here, and there's even some old Master System games. Like, they could really go crazy with it, make it a single device, sell it for 100 bucks, and it would go like hotcakes. I think it would do really well. I agree with that. Yeah, I, I think I that think would so be too. an awesome thing to do. But we also yeah. have What's a little segment coming up now called This Month in Video Game History. On January 24th of 1984, Apple Inc. announces the original 128K floppy disk only Macintosh. Did anybody have this uh, computer back in the day? Uh, no, but I had, my parents were too cheap, they, but we had the uh, Apple IIe mm. leading up to that, and they would never let me play games on it because my dad was sure I was going to destroy the keyboard. So. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about the Apple IIe last week, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. I I did not own a uh, a Macintosh either. My first computer was a Hewlett Packard, I think. Might have been a bit before that. Was it I a Packard exactly Bell? Tell me it was a Packard Bell because those were garbage. <laughs> it <laughs> might have been. Yeah, I had one too. They were not good. No, they were not. A, I mean, yeah. At the time, whatever. I had to, how was I going to play Age of Empires or whatever the hell I wanted to put on there? <laughs> but uh, I would have taken whatever. But. Man, we've come a long way. <laughs> yes, yes, we have. Yeah. Uh, January of 1985, Konami releases, and forgive me for butchering the title, Yi'ar Kung Fu, which lays the foundations for modern fighting games. I don't remember this at all. I do remember this, but mainly because I bought it on a uh, another collection. It was a Konami collection that came out for, I forgot what device it was. This was a few years ago, so it must have probably been a maybe it was PC. But anyway, it was a bunch of Konami stuff. Maybe in Game Boy. I don't oh Game Boy Advance is where I got it, I think. But anyway, it was a bunch of old Konami games all collected. It included like Miss Pac-Man, some of the bigger titles, and then they had this on there. And it was this weird fighting game uh where you'd leap the characters would leap way in the air, and they were very small sprites, and it was the way that the thing was shot was like shot as if it was a camera now i'm talking your language there but uh but like at the bottom of the screen you see the two guys real low and then when they jump they'd go way to the top of the you know portrait style screen and then come crashing down on each other and i found it really hard to play and super weird but i totally get the lineage and i i understand why people revere it it's a pretty nifty little little example of early fighting games for sure cool Sweet. Uh, also in January of 1985, Commodore releases their final 8-bit computer, the Commodore 128. Never had one of these, but I did have a Commodore 64. Yeah. 
Well, you had the popular one then. Yeah. So the 64 was a, it was a big success for them. Everything beyond that kind of petered out and nothing ever came of it and they went away. But uh, the Commodore 64 is a legend. Mm-hmm. And the 128, I don't think I even knew someone who had that. I think it was, I think by then people had moved on. People were using Amigas if you were looking for high-end crazy stuff. Um, I think Commodore's best days were behind them. Yeah, I wouldn't mind finding a working Amiga if I could get my hands on one. Mm-hmm. Uh, in January of 1994, Mega Man X is released in the United States. What is this never Mega played Man it. you speak of? I've never heard of it. I mean, we, we've, we've never spoke about this thing on this podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> I never I never really was a Mega Man guy, so you guys would have to tell me if 10 or X was was all that. Uh, J- Jason's the Mega Man guy. I've briefly played the first one, and that's about my extent with Mega Man. Well, mm. uh, if, if I'm going to uh, recommend one, I say just go with Mega Man 2, the best of the, the, the entire series. So that that's the one to play, Mega Man 2. All right. Especially if you like games... Uh, you know, if you like games like uh, Cuphead, things like that, Cuphead don't have shit on Mega Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Cuphead owes its lineage to that, right? Like the yeah. really hard side-scrollers of the day, which Mega Man 1 and 2 were definitely that. Yeah, but all these kids they... now are talking about Cuphead so hard. I'm like, no! Go back and yeah. play those old NES games, man. I used to have bruises on my leg from when I would get so mad and start punching myself in the leg. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, January 1st of 1995, Tamsoft SCEA releases Battle Arena Toshinden for the PlayStation, one of the first fully yeah. 3D games. I played that. I played the hell out of that. I got a day one and thought it was amazing. Sorry, I just put an image in the uh, doc of the uh, Mega Man uh, duck, if that's yes. interesting. You know. <laughs> Steve. Um, <laughs> I did that forever ago. But anyway, um, yeah, I uh, I love Battle Arena Toshinden. It was, it was something else. Like that was, a at the time, just mind-blowing. And you were like, forget Street Fighter. That's dumb. This is, yeah. look at this. This is the new hotness. And... I think it's its best modern uh, example of that would have been the Soul Calibur games. I think those took that idea and took it even further, where it's like sort of weapon-based uh, fighting. Um, but now, who cares? That game's not good. I played it recently, emulated. It's terrible, actually. So yeah, Battle Arena Toshinden, <laughs> its new box art should say, not as good as you thought it was. <laughs> yeah, Street Fighter 2 still holds up. <laughs> Go back and look at those old PlayStation 1 fighting games, and it's like, whoa! That's gross. Yeah. Yeah. And two is also bad, by the yeah. way. They made a sequel and it was not good. And to close out this month in video game history, on January 13th, 1995, Taito releases Bust a Move for the SNES. I yep, remember playing this game. Um, when I, The dentist office I used to go to as a kid had this arcade machine, and this it had two different games on it, and this was one of them. And I, I never played it for the actual console, but I, I love playing the arcade version of it. It's simple, but it's fun. It's stupid stupid that they changed the name. So in Japan, it was something else. Here, they called it Bust a Move because they thought it would sound co- cooler for 90s kids. Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with the game. Like, it sounds like a dancing <laughs> game or something. 
you shoot little bubbles up and try to match colors and pop the bubbles. It, the fact they called it Bust a Move is the it's so dumb. And the art cover for that was hideous. But I had a Saturn version. I bought it at Ultimate Electronics. No, Incredible Universe before they caved and went away. Um, yeah. Brought that yeah. home. And to this day, that is the game that if if my wife and I are, are 100% devoted to each other, and we have been since the day we met. But I'll tell you what. If there was ever a chance for divorce, it's while playing head-to-head Bust-A-Move. <laughs> <laughs> super, super bad news, that thing. Oh, man. Very competitive. Derek, yeah. you talk about oh, that was man. in your, your dentist office. You had a cool dentist, man. Like, when I went to the dentist as a kid, all he had was, like, 10-year-old uh, um, uh, Southern Living magazines in there or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, the cool are, thing was, it, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> the good thing for me was that the the wait took forever, so I just got the chance to play that. And they also had um, they had a Super Nintendo at one point because I remember playing Super Mario World at the dentist's office too. I'm like, no, I I can push my appointment back. I'll, I'll keep playing. Yeah, <laughs> they have the our dentist up here has uh, it's the continue on except now it's a 65 inch TV mounted to the wall in HD. They're playing a PlayStation 4 preloaded with a ton of downloaded games and four controllers in there and a bunch of kids, you know, forgetting that their mouths are about to be shot with needles. It's great. Yeah. I go to the dentist <laughs> now and he has the, uh, the TV on in the actual room you go in and they'll have like Fox news on. And I'm just like, just knock me out, do it. Yeah. <laughs> Drill yeah. me into the brain. I don't care. Yep. <laughs> uh, do it right now. <laughs> let's go ahead and talk about books, Derek, before we go into our review for this evening. Sure. So for you, the listeners of the Nerd Cave Retro Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I'm pulling up the full title of the book I've been reading because uh, it's kind of long. It's called uh, – um, I've been in kind of like a you know motivational uh, speaking type mood. So I've been reading this book called No is a Four-Letter Word, How I Failed Spelling But Succeeded in Life – by Chris Jericho, who is a pro wrestler, rock star, author. Uh, it's, a, I think, a, like a 20-chapter book, and each chapter uh, is some type of tip for succeeding in your career and in life, and he tells stories that relate to that tip. So um, it's not a very long book. It's only like five hours long, and I'm about halfway through it. But so far, it's it's really good. But they Audible has you know a ton of other books. They have fiction, nonfiction uh, if you're a gamer and if you're listening to this podcast, I would assume that you are. Uh, they have books from the Halo series, Gears of War, Mass Effect, any genre you can think of Audible has. And if you're always on the go like I am, Audible's a great service to have to be able to continue to read books without having to actually sit down and read a physical copy. And to do that, just go to audibletrial.com slash nerdcave. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash nerdcave for your free audiobook download and 30-day free trial. God, that music takes me right back, man. <laughs> oh, doesn't it? I'm glad you went with the original version there's oh, yeah. like a popular one that that was remade um 
it was either the late 90s or early 2000s that most everyone knows, but that that is the original. This week, we're going to be talking Mortal Kombat, one of, if not the most iconic fighting games ever made in the history of gaming. It's an arcade fighting game developed and published by Midway in 1992 as the first title in the Mortal Kombat series. It was subsequently released by Acclaim Entertainment for nearly every home video game platform of the time. Now, most people know the arcade version, and we've talked about the the controversies with uh, you know it getting put on Nintendo and you know taking out the blood and all that stuff. And my my first experience to this game personally was the uh, Super Nintendo version. Uh, this was the game that you know, every kid my age had to play because it was like the, it didn't have blood in it, but it was still considered fairly adult for its time. So being, let's see, this came out in 92. So I was, I was six or seven at the time. So it's like, oh, this is, this is the cool game to have. And, you know, it introduced so many cool things. Like it had, you know, really cool characters like Scorpion, Sub-Zero, um, reptile, the you know the the hit the famous hidden character that looked like Scorpion uh, and Sub Zero, but had a green outfit instead of blue or yellow. You had Liu Kang, uh, Raiden, which is um, a very popular one as well. But I know we were talking, Jason, before we got started. You didn't remember that this game actually had a story mode in it. Yeah. Well, I was never really a big fighting game fan. Like I, I liked uh, Street Fighter. Um, and I remember uh, the restaurant that I worked at uh, at around this time, um, around 93, we had a Mortal Kombat 2 machine in the back. It was a mm-hmm. pizza restaurant. We had the, the cocktail, Miss Pac-Man, and we had a, a Mortal Kombat 2. And I, I was a beast with Baraka, man. I was really good with that. But <laughs> I never... I never really liked playing fighting games like on the home console or anything. So I never really played too much of the uh, Mortal Kombat um, like I said, I played Street Fighter a little bit, but I don't think I've ever like purchased a fighting game just to have a fighting game. Oh my gosh. I was like first in line for MK when it hit the Genesis. We went in early and everything, did a pre-order. The news came. We got on camera for some morning news show because they were like, <laughs> controversial game, Mortal Kombat with the bloody this and that because that was the huge deal around it yeah. at the time. Yeah, uh, And I loved the MK series. That was my fighting game. And to this day, it's more interesting to me than any other fighting game. And I'm not even that much into fighting games, but there's something about Mortal Kombat where it's like, yeah, this is dark, this is twisted, it goes to places, they tell a weird story. Mm-hmm. That, that to me is more than just the competitive scene or whatever. And even there they do okay these days. So, yeah, MK, man, lots of lots of fond memories. I mean, 2 is where it was at for me. I also liked Baraka a lot, and I could play him and Jax until my face was red. I love those two. Um, but that series is so great and so dumb and great and dumb. Well, yeah, yeah it, you, you know, you look back at the controversy now and it's so quaint. <laughs> like yeah. I miss those days. It really is. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that, you know, this is one of those franchises that, you know, when you think of video games, it's like one of the first, you know, five games that you'll think of because it spawned. You know, two movies. The first one, I actually, for what it was, I didn't think was that bad. Second one's terrible. But it actually did, if you guys haven't watched the um, Mortal Kombat Legacy web series, it's really, really good. Oh, it's made so really good. well. 
Yeah. I, I, I wish they would make a movie like that. It would be awesome. Or, you know what? I thought it was, in fact, at the time I remember seeing it because there's some pretty big names in it, uh, some mm -hmm. BSG actors and some other stuff. And I thought, oh, this will be, they're doing a new series or something. So I thought it was all teasers for a, for a TV show. That mm -hmm. was back in what, like 2010 or 11? I think you could do it now. And there's a million ways and places you could put it. And in our new world of Hulu, Netflix, and everything yeah. else, there is there is a way to make a proper MK series come to life, or at the very least, like you say, a movie. And it doesn't need to be in theaters, and it doesn't need to have the budget that people think it does. Like they could really go places. I am with you 100. percent Well, and they could even do what they did with Castlevania. They could do basically like a trial, and then if that works, then you do either a Netflix film or you do. Uh, a series and let's see it was originally released in april 11th of 2011 there was two there were two seasons and 19 episodes mm -hmm. so for anybody who's listening who hasn't watched that definitely go on youtube and find it because it's it's really good and I, I remember the guy who directed all these episodes they were saying that they were going to give him like control over making an actual mortal Kombat movie mm -hmm. uh but that but that was back in 2013 and nothing's came of it ever since. But, you know, Mortal Kombat is just one of those franchises that it transcends video games because you think of Mortal Kombat and almost everyone has some type of Mortal Kombat story. And, you know, I remember when they did the remake for uh, Xbox 360 back in, I think, 2010 or 2011. And, you know, me and a group of like five or six friends were just geeking out over it. And we went to you know, the midnight release of it and went back to, you know, one of my friend's house and stayed up all night just beating the crap out of each other. Mm. So it, it's it, it's a really fun series. Well, the good news is, I was just looking this up, Collider.com this year, no, sorry, last year, 2017, uh, there is a script being passed around Hollywood right now, uh, an original Mortal Kombat reboot saying it reads like a hard R Avengers and Sweet. I'm all I'm all in. Sign me up. I'm ready. My body. That's what is I was gonna say. If I'll be gonna, there day one. If you're gonna yep. do a Mortal Kombat movie, do the the Thor Ragnarok route and just go in whole hog with like you know just silliness and just make it so over the top, and you'll get away with it. Don't try to be all like earnest with it. Try to write like this you know epic story. Just go in and just make it what it is. And I think it'll do well. Yeah, I agree. That would be such a fun time at the theater. Oh, man. But uh, let's see. The the story of the game, it focuses on the journey of the monk Liu Kang to save Earth from the evil sorcerer Shang Tsung, ending with their confrontation in the tournament known as Mortal Kombat. Uh, what, what was your guy's go-to character? I know you guys mentioned Baraka. What, was he your guy's go-to character for the series? Hmm. Mm. Yeah, Sub Zero actually, and 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 uh, uh, who's the who's the other one? Uh, uh, Scorpion. They were my as much as they were like mascots of the series because they sort of were. They were mm -hmm. all they were also the guys I would always go to. They they probably appealed to me the most. And then I kind of branched out with two more, but at the end of the day, even now I'll play a modern one, and I always pick one of those guys. I want to shoot. And listen, who doesn't want to throw a chain with a hook on the end of it across the thing and stake over here? You know? Get over here! Exactly, come here! Like he was just a badass in every way, and I would, yeah, I would play again right now if I had him in front of me. Yeah, well, I even always... on that that Legacy series, the 
dynamic between the Scorpion and Sub-Zero characters were awesome. And, you know, Sub-Zero was my guy, like, mm. all in. Yeah. I Ice always powers. went Baraka, mm. but uh, either him or my, my backup was always Raiden. I always played Raiden. Raiden. Raiden was a good one too. I always tried to play yep. like Sub Zero and Scorpion because they were like the cool, you know, characters to play. But I, I never, like I said, I never was a real big fighting game fan. And like Baraka was the easiest one to ch- kind of figure out, <laughs> you know, his special moves. And I'm not a special move figure outer kind of guy. That's just not my my thing. I never can get special moves in in a game. Never have been able yeah. to. Which is kind of that whole thing. I mean, that's fighting games in a nutshell, and that's why I think I didn't love the genre as much either. I think that's why Mortal Kombat clicked for me more than others, because it's a lot of simple stuff. It's you know a lot of cool uppercuts and timing and moves mattered, but they were kind of like multiple characters across the board would have similar moves. It's not like you had to relearn something every time, and... I just felt like it was just easier to get into where street fighter was like, all right, I need to know everything about this freaking fool. And yeah, I hate it. I was just never, like, I've never actually even played a street fighter game before, which mm. is crazy. It's like, it's like mortal Kombat was just, that was my fighting game growing up. And then, you know, smash brothers came along in the late nineties and, uh, that was it for me. Like smash brothers now is my favorite, like fighting game franchise. But um, let's see, the legacy and the reception of uh, Mortal Kombat. Electronic Gaming Monthly uh, awarded Mortal Kombat the title of Most Controversial Game of 1993. Uh, see, in 95, Daily News wrote, Original Mortal Kombat video game, which debuted in 1992, is a combination of storyline and character and mega-violence soon made it a hit worldwide. And the controversy engin- engendered, I think is the word, by its blood gushing special effects only served to boost its popularity. Uh, see, in 2004, readers of Retro Gamer voted Mortal Kombat as the 55th top retro game of all time. Uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly and its original scores gave the Genesis version an 8.25 out of 10 and SNES a 7.25. GamePro gave it a 5 out of 5. Games Master gave it an 81%. And Mega gave it an eighty-two percent. So I like here for the most says, part, pretty um, pretty high re- reviews. It says yeah. in two thousand six, IGN named the SNES port as the eighth worst arcade to console conversion. I didn't think it was that bad, other than the well, the, the blood being changed. No, yeah, you got to remember that the conversion itself was. I mean, it looked good. It looked better than the Genesis one. The Genesis one had missing frames of animation. It sounded kind of bad, but it had the blood right. Like it had the tone. And the mm-hmm. SNES version had all the sweat, fake, yeah. whatever that was, coming out of people. And I don't, I think that's enough because it because it damages the tone of the series. I think that's enough for them to maybe call it that. That's maybe a little harsh, but I've seen some pretty bad ports in my life. I mean, yeah. did they forget about Pac-Man for the Atari 2600? That was a garbage poo. That is a game of which we do not speak. <laughs> it's the <laughs> barely a game it's just an abomination so i I take issue with them calling that out but i guess i kind of understand it too i still remember being like a six-year-old kid trying to play pac-man on the uh our atari 2600 and just going what the hell is this This is the worst thing i've ever played ever so bad 
Yeah, everyone gives E.T. all that heat for his, you know, because it was so bad you could get stuck and never get out. You got buried in the New Mexico desert. Like all those things make that a very fun story. But I'm telling you, for my money, it was Pac-Man as the abomination. That thing is garbage. And did you uh, did you know this, that they made more copies of Pac-Man than they had actual uh, Atari 2600 consoles out there because they were so sure that Pac-Man was going to be a system seller. And yeah, that's well, why... It sold okay, right? Like, in the end, did. I think that game did all right financially, but I, nobody was singing its praises, I don't think. No, but it was one of the games. I mean, everybody kind of blames E.T. as the, the game that caused the 1983 crash, but it really started with Pac-Man. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, one last little review about it. Um, let's see. In 2012, Time Magazine named it one of the 100 greatest video games of all time. And in 2013, it was ranked as the best arcade game of the 1990s. That's high praise. So pretty, pretty high praise. Mm. I mean, I, I definitely think like it's, it's probably not my all-time favorite fighting game, but I think it's, it's one of those games that put video gaming on the map in the 90s. So I, I definitely respect its place, you know, in the video game world. If if I'm to give it a number score, because I I haven't been able to find a physical copy here in town, so I just downloaded an emulator and played it earlier today just to, you know, kind of get a feel for the game and see if it still holds up. And it, it still it still plays pretty well. So I I would give it probably I'd give it a solid eight. Yeah, is what I would give it. I get that's where I'd be. Uh, I'd I'd apply it to the whole series as well. Um, I think it's been pretty consistent that way. There were some dips in the 2000s, but um, yeah. yeah. And also, I think it'd be, it's almost impossible to think of a more controversial game in the 90s. Um, Maybe ever. Like, if you had to do a list of most controversial games ever made, I think that one's right up there. I mean, you could talk about the hot coffee thing with uh, GTA San Andreas. You could talk about lots of stuff. But in the end, that San Andreas stuff is is like out in full motion in GTA Five. It's not they didn't stop doing that. Yeah, it was just controversial because up to that point, nobody had sort of pushed those those limits. So MK, I mean, that was a lasting impact, and it's still gross, man. Those new <laughs> MK games are gross. Yeah, <laughs> they're really gross. So I think it deserves the title. It's the most controversial video game of all time, certainly in a mainstream way. I'm sure there are plenty of Plenty of people upset about, I don't know, what was that guy? Leisure Suit Larry or freaking oh, yeah. weird C yeah. games with like, I don't, there was a game with a naked sheriff where he used his wiener to shoot at you. <laughs> I remember that. But, but those were, you know, those were small, fringy things. This was mainstream, partially responsible for the, uh, for the, uh, self regulating of, of the industry and a rating system being developed. I mean, parents screaming and, and people threatening to sue game makers and game publishers and stores out of existence if they even thought about carrying it like it was a huge deal yeah Yeah. and a good game it turns out you know and like i said i've never really been a big fighting game fan but you know if they were to come out with a mortal Kombat series for hulu or netflix or something i would watch it just because i think the Mm -hmm. characters are cool like i still like the first movie as cheesy Mm -hmm. as it is the second one's in in a in a front to humanity but you know, no, the first one's still. Movie I saw. I've seen a lot of movies on FilmSack. Uh, easily my least 
or my most disappointing, most awful thing I've seen is Mortal Kombat Annihilation, and I, I recommend how. everyone see it at least once <laughs> and then never speak of it again. I don't know how you guys yes. made it through that movie. It's awful. <laughs> it's one of the worst yeah. things ever. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, but, um, but that's coming up to the end of the show, and I uh, just want to give a huge thank you to Scott for coming on to the show this week. Thank you, sir. Yes, thank you thanks. very much. Thanks, you guys. It was a pleasure being here. I totally enjoyed it, and um, I think you guys have a cool thing going here. I love talking about retro stuff, and it's a perfect time to be doing it, too. There's like such a great resurgence right now oh, and, yeah. and interest in the history of this stuff, and it's cool that you've got a show that's chronicling that in a pretty cool way. So thank you for having me on. It was my pleasure. Well, tell everybody uh, all your info before we get out of here, where they can find you at. Sure. Uh, if you are interested in any of the work I'm doing, you can find links to it and for it at frogpants.com. Uh, that's where all the podcasts can be found, all the artwork I'm up to, all that kind of stuff. So if you are interested in that, check it out. That's frogpants.com. Or if you just rather uh, hear me ramble on Twitter, I am at Scott Johnson on Twitter. And uh, you can, I talk to people on there too. Like people always say, oh, God, you're over 100,000 tweets. How's that possible? And I'm like, I reply to everybody. So if you all say something, you'll get an answer. Even if it's an answer you don't want, I'll still give you one. <laughs> Uh, and like I said, the the Frog Pants stuff, my favorite podcast to listen to. I, I couldn't live without the morning stream because I fortunately have a job to where I can listen to podcasts all day. And it's definitely the first thing I pop on in the mornings when I get to work. So thank you so much for all the great content. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And Derek, what you got going on this week? So uh, this upcoming Tuesday on my show, The Derek Diamond Experience, I will be having uh, – a debate that I've been looking forward to for the last couple of weeks. Was The Last Jedi really as bad as fans are making it out to be? You are stepping I'll, I'll in tell the hot, quick, hot territory, my friend. <laughs> I'll, I'll, tell a, I'll tell a quick story. So two of my friends at work uh, went to see the movie, and they've just been doing nothing but bashing it. And I was like, you know what? I've got a platform where we can discuss this. So we set it up, and... Yeah, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. If you want to hear uh, me try to defend The Last Jedi and other people try to bash it, just go to facebook.com slash ddiamondpodcast. Uh, I've got some some other cool uh, shows and roundtables coming up in the next couple of weeks, so if you want to keep up with that, uh, again, go to Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ddiamondpodcast. Uh, and a little throwback to last week's episode. This still making me laugh to this day, and I don't know why. But remember, kids, whenever somebody asks you who runs Barter Town, Master Blaster runs Barter Town. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. That just brings me so much joy. <laughs> so if you would like to email us, you can email us at nerdcaveretro at gmail.com. We're at nerdcaveretro.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at nerdcaveretro. You can follow us individually at, at jfunktastic, at Derek underscore diamond. And we're at Facebook at facebook.com slash nerdcaveretro. So Derek, tell them what it's all about. May the way of the hero lead to the Triforce. Master Blaster runs by town. <laughs> been listening to a Nerd Cave Network production. <laughs>